Our reading this morning follows on, really, from what that song is talking about. How deep the fathers of love for us. And we read in Hosea 11, verses 1 to 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realise it was I who healed them. I fed them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to his cheek. And I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me, all my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I de devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord and he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. And our second reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 4 to verse 7. Verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. What a wonderful thing. Morning and welcome again. It's great to great to be with you. My name is Jonathan, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at WDBC. Uh, if I haven't a chance to greet you this morning, hello and welcome. Uh, it's good to be together and to be in God's Word uh, together. Uh, I'm going to. Uh, where? What happened to our slides? There we go. There, there we are. Uh, we are in the midst of this series, uh, What is the Church? And we've just sort of got underway. And, and our aims in this, in this series are to try to, to really refocus our orientation when we come to church, to refocus on God and say, we come to church not for me, but we come for the Lord. Uh, another aim that we have in this series is to remember our purpose. Remember our purpose. Another one is to renew our love for one another. And finally, we want to understand how to reflect Christ to one another and to the world. These are all things that the church uh, can do. Now, as we come into this series, uh, this is a bit of an overview. Uh, and we're just, we're just sort of the second way in, second message in. And we're looking here in this first section, these first four messages deal with the church's relation to God the Father. And we've seen last week that the church in its essence is, is an assembly, it's a gathering, it's those who've been called out, called together by God. And this morning we're going to learn a little bit more about what that gathering looks like. And here in Hosea 11 and Galatians 3 and a whole host of other places, you're going to see that to be gathered as the church is to be gathered into God's household, his home as it were. Uh, last week, we asked the question, why does the church gather? And we saw that the church are those who rally to Jesus. In Isaiah, God is pictured as holding up a banner to the nations. That banner is Jesus risen from the dead, and he's calling the remnant of his people Israel, and he's calling the nations to come and rally under the banner of Christ. And that's what we are as a church. We're the assembly of those who'd rallied to Jesus. And we talked about how important it is that Jesus is our rallying point, not all these other things that we may try to make it to be. This week, we're going to see that the church is God's household. It's God's household. Think of a home. Think of, think of a family. And that's the answer to the question of what, what kind of assembly are we? We are assembly that is a family. The church is a family gathered into God's household. Every family is different. Your family is different. Every family has quirks. Every family has customs. I'll never forget when I met my wife's family. I met Joanna's family. I flew into another state, I uh, flew into Montana, and it was Joanna's 21st birthday. Gee, that was a while ago. It was Joanna's 21st birthday, and we, we, they, they flew me out. Her, her dad 
said, I, I, need to, I need to figure out who this guy is that she's talking about. So he graciously uh, offered to pay, pay for my ticket. Right, and so he flew me out. And I'll never forget, I landed late. Late that night, I was crossing time zones. Imagine flying from Sydney over to Perth. And so we're, we're, we're sort of in, in the wee hours of the morning. And I land after multiple connecting flights and we finally get in. You know, they're there at the airport. They're all, you know, saying hi and so and you're very happy to see me. We go back to the house and I literally did not get my bag put away, but we went straight to this very large wooden rustic Montana kitchen table and the whole family plus two, three other friends are there gathered and someone leads me to a seat in the middle of the table and they all gather around and they say, okay, let's get started. And the questions were coming like rapid fire. You know, bam, oh, where'd you grow up? Oh, where'd you get, well, you know, where'd you go to school? Oh, why'd you study that? Oh, why do you like this? Oh, tell us about when did you meet Joanna? Oh, what are the things you like about her? Oh, what sort of man do you want to be? Oh, what's your career going to be? You know, bam, 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 rapid fire. I never experienced anything like it. It was, it was an interrogation with wonderful heart intent behind it. You see, if that had happened in my house, what would have happened is we would have said, oh, come in, are you make you feel comfortable? Oh, what would you like to do right now? Oh, sit over there. And, and sort of, we would kind of sidle up to you and just sort of slowly sort of piece together this picture of, of who you are. And maybe after a series of, you know, many, many, many visits, you know, we might broach a deep conversation. Not in this house. And I, I learned after the fact that, that that was such an important meeting because in my, in, in my whether it was naivety or, or youthful exuberance, uh, after about an hour and a half as we're getting close to midnight, again, it's probably 3 a.m. my time, I, I found, I summoned some confidence up from somewhere. I, I put my hands together. I looked around the table and I said, anything else? And I was told later, that's when I was in. Uh, they, they, they knew, they, they, they were ready that I had withstood the interrogation, I had withstood the inquisition. But every family is different. Every family has customs, every family has markers. You need to learn those customs, you need to learn those markers. Every family is different. God's family is different in all the best ways possible. So I want you to realize that there's things about this idea of being in God's house that might make us feel uncomfortable. It might bring up for us some, some, some unhealthy experiences we've had in the past. It also might mean we're bringing some unhealthy assumptions of what a household looks like. And so we need to be careful not just to read our own background into the household of God. But nevertheless, God is pleased to call us a family in terms of our overview, uh, we're going to see today that uh, as members of God's household, he's brought us into a family. And so the Bible describes the church as a family that shares a common identity. There's four things we're going to we see that we'll share. Uh, we share a father. We share a heritage. We share a status. And we share a resemblance. The church, all of us, all of those who belong to Jesus Christ, all those who put our trust in Christ, who've been born of the Spirit, who, who have entered into the new covenant, all of us share these things, a father, a heritage, a status, and a resemblance. We're going to look at these one by one. Uh, 
But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of context uh, as we go into our passages today. Uh, Our Old Testament text today is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 to 11. I just want you to know the challenge in doing a topical series like this is there is so much the Bible has to say. So so we don't have the advantage of sort of camping. We're going to try to camp as much as we can in these two texts, Hosea and Galatians. But but the difficulty is there's so much there. So you're going to see in blue these other references. And I just, if you're taking notes or or you, you, you have your phone out, I encourage you to just jot these things down because you can go back to them and look into God's word and see what else paints this picture. Hosea chapter 11 is is a moving picture in the Old Testament of God's parental love for Israel, his child. And the text he's referred to as Ephraim. Ephraim was one of Joseph's sons. And you recall how, how special Joseph was to Jacob. And uh, Ephraim, uh, at this point in their history, they're, they're the wayward son. It's the northern kingdom, and they're in the midst of deportation and uh, exile at the hands of the Assyrian superpower. Uh, their idolatry had turned them away from the Lord, and so they were going to be receiving the judgment. But as any loving parent would understand, God here is pictured as, as wrenched between the just judgment that his children deserve and the compassion and the pity that he feels for them. It's a moving glimpse into the heart of God in this text. There's, there's four main sections in this. Uh, verses one to four talk about how God reared Israel as his child. The next few verses talk about, uh, verses five to seven talk about the judgment that they deserve, their refusal to receive his, his parental love. And in verses eight and nine, you have this burst of compassion as God says he's going to, he's going to not utterly destroy them. He's not going to bring the fullness of his wrath. Even though they will be judged, they will not be destroyed. And then finally is the promise and the hope that he'll call them back. But two other passages you may want to look at. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, it's God speaking to Pharaoh. And you think about, you know, the movie, The Prince of Egypt, and, you know, Moses leading the children out of the promised land. Well, Exodus 4, 22, God has a word for Pharaoh, and he says, Israel, these people, Israel, Israel is my son. Let them go that they may worship me. And he threatens him. He says, because you will not let my son go, I will take your firstborn son. The last plague, the last plague on the Egyptians, the death of the firstborn, was the consequence of their refusal to let God's firstborn, to let his son, Israel, go. As we move into, uh, I want to give you a bit of background to our New Testament passage, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 uh, to 4, 7. Here, Paul gives a clear statement of how believers now relate to God as Father on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ. So baptized and sealed by the Holy Spirit, they are now adopted into God's household where they share in the blessings and in the inheritance of Christ as co-heirs. Now a main focus point in Galatians is how this household, this, there's room at this table. It's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. It's not just for the nation of Israel, but it's for all those who are outside of Israel. They can come in through the same entry point. That is through faith in Christ. And so Paul 
brings some wonderful conclusions out in this passage that their adoption confers upon, sorry, the, the adoption that we receive through the Spirit of Christ, it confers upon us an entirely new status as God's children. And this status supersedes every other human category. And he gives the three big ones, race, ethnicity, gender. This is a true transformation. This being brought into the household of God. So this is where we're looking at today. Uh, I'm going to invite you to pray with me now as we, as we prepare um, to go deeper into the word. Father, would you bless us? We rejoice that we are called your children. Lord, would you help me to be faithful this morning to represent you and your word truthfully? Father, would you give us strength in our hearts to, to comprehend the depth of your love and the implications of that for us as we live out our status as children in this world? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So these are the four things we share, a, how, a father, a heritage, a status, and a resemblance. Uh, first, we share a father. And the scripture shows that our father is perfect. Note the creation and the character of our family as the church. It depends upon God as our father. God sets the tone of who we are.
God loves to feed and he loves to supply. And so like, like a compassionate farmer, he says, he says I bent down and I, and I took the yoke off you. I removed the bit from your mouth so that you could eat and rest in peace. That's his heart. He's tender and he's compassionate. Many of you maybe need to hear that this morning. God is tender and compassionate. But they didn't want this, God. They didn't want his tenderness, and so they refused. And then God says, you're going to walk away from me. I'm going to call you. You're going to walk away. But, but I, I still love you. Look at verse 8. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? In the midst of God saying, you're going to be judged. You're going to be sent away. You're going to be taken away. God is he's looking at the reality, and he says, how can I, how can I let you go? But he's not going to let them off the hook. He's not going to say, well, now there's no consequence for your rebellion. No, you're still going to go into exile, but he's going to bring them back. And so we see here that God is involved and he's invested in his people. He's persistent and just, and he's available. He is available when they call. Look, just at the end, we could stay all morning in this, but we won't. In, in, in verse 10 and 11, he, he says, after his compassion's aroused, he said, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves, and I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. When he says, I'm not gonna treat them like Adma and Zeboim, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> Adma and Zeboim were two cities in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's meant to evoke the picture of total destruction. Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped off the face of the earth and these cities that were around and near them. And so God's saying, I'm not going to treat them like that. I'm not going to give the full vent to my wrath. I'm not going to, I'm not going to utterly destroy them. That's not who I am. This is my child. This is my son. This is God's heart. Our father is perfect. He's persistent and just. Luke chapter 15, Jesus teaches us about the parable of the prodigal son. And he says, God's like the father who's inviting his children back. He's, 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 he's there and he's waiting. Yes, they've ran away. But when they come back, he's looking and he's watching on the road. He's watching for them to return. And when they return, he's ready to rejoice and he's ready to celebrate. This is the father that we share. He is perfect. He will also discipline us, by the way. I just preached a sermon on that a few weeks ago in Hebrews. If, if you're unclear about that, I encourage you to go back and look at that. Hebrews chapter 12. Next, we share a heritage. And our heritage is Christ. A heritage is, is a valuable possession. It's something that's timeless and it's something that lasts and it's something that's passed on, particularly within families. You might think of a family heirloom. You might think of something really treasure, uh, a special treasure that was given to you. Our heritage is Christ. And here in Galatians, Paul states quite simply that in Christ Jesus, we are sons of God through faith. Our entry point into the family, into the household, is through Jesus Christ. 
And if you want to compare it to what has come before, God sent his son, Jesus, to bring back his wayward son, Israel. But they rejected him, didn't they? They killed him. This is what the preaching in the early book of Acts is all about, is the, the Jews' rejection of God's, God's invitation back through his son, Jesus. Nevertheless, we are brought into God's household through Christ alone, united by faith. So becoming like Jesus, Jesus, sorry, excuse me, becoming like us, Jesus suffered on our behalf in order to bring us to glory. Christ is our treasure. Christ is the one. He's the one that's passed from generation to generation, from home to home. If you're in a Christian home today, don't pass on your customs, pass on Christ. Yes, there will be customs, but make sure you pass on Christ. He's the family heritage. He is our true wealth and treasure because he's the one who brings us into God's family. He did this through his suffering, and Hebrews tells us he brings many sons to glory. He brings us into this privileged position. How, how rich are the bountiful blessings in Christ? It's rich enough to turn you into an object of wrath, excuse me, from an object of wrath into a son of glory. That's how rich the treasure of Christ is. He did this for us. And this is what our baptism represents. Our baptism is our profession that Jesus is both our redeemer and our reward. Think about what's going on in baptism. We talk about this all the time, but this is why baptism was was sort of like the first step. Oh, you hear, you hear the Messiah? You have faith in the Messiah? Get baptized. Because in baptism, baptism says, I am participating. I'm united with this Jesus. And so through the act of being immersed in the water and then coming out of the water, I am saying that I have died, that the old me has perished, and that the new person who rises from the water is a person who's risen in Christ. First spiritually, then physically in a glorified body. But this is what we're saying, and this is why baptism is that identification. And my profession of that is to say, he has become my heritage. He has become my identity. Is that true for you today? John chapter 1. So many scriptures. John chapter 1 says that God sent his son. Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world, but his own did not receive him. But to anyone who does receive him, they have the right to become children of God. Not children born of human will, but children born of God himself. What a rich heritage we have in Jesus. So we share a father, we share a heritage. Next, we share a status. And here we see our status is one of sonship. Galatians 3, 28 to 4, 5. Sorry, I am, there is so much here, and I'm trying to be respectful of people's time, but I'm also feeling very rushed. So I'm going to slow down. I'm going to slow down. If you need to go, you can go. I won't take it personally. <laughs> uh, we share a father. We share a heritage. We share a status. Our status in this family is one of sonship. 
Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 to 4, verse 5. Here, Paul says, he's writing to the churches in Galatia, these Gentile believers who are, who are being uh, told they need, to, they need to adopt the old rites of passage, that Jesus wasn't enough. Here's what Paul says. He says, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is all status language. In the history of God's dealings with his image bearers, you are either a part of his family or you are not. You're either in or you're out. This is the language of status. We talk about the haves and the have-nots. But in Christ, notice we all, we all have been given a new status as fully adopted sons. Now, we're not trying to offend the women among us, okay? You need to realize that we're working with a document that was written two millennia ago, okay? And so we don't just read our 21st century lens into it. We need to understand what it meant when it was written. And in those days, as one New Testament professor I know has quipped to me, he said, there were two genders. There was male and non-male. You were a man or you weren't, which was their way of saying, we don't really care about you. You're sort of closer to an animal than you are another human. In a household, the sons had all the privilege. The sons are the ones who were educated. The sons are the ones who the inheritance was passed to. The sons were the ones who were expected to take up the place of honor in the city among the families. The slaves, well, they were there for function and utility. They were there to serve the sons. They were there to make sure the household operated. And a slave could be bought or sold, given away, mistreated, abused. It was property, not a person. And if you were living in the Roman Empire and you were a Jew, you were second class. If you were in Israel and you were a Gentile, you were second class. Paul says here in Galatians chapter 3, in Christ we receive sonship. To be adopted as a son was, was a legal process back in that day. And you could, you could actually adopt someone and, and transfer their status. In fact, probably of those three categories, Jew, Gentile, slave, son, and male, female, the easiest to, to the, the, not that any were easy, but the only one you could really make any sort of movement in was to move from a slave into some, something better than a slave. But you couldn't change your ethnicity and you couldn't change your gender. But in Christ, all of this is set to one side because our status in God's house supersedes every other human classification. Consider how your faith in Christ transforms you. You went from being a slave to being a child. Now, most of us here say, I'm not a slave. Okay. How much control do you actually have 
over your desires? How much autonomy do you actually have over your own soul? How much are you at the mercy of this fallen world around you? You see, the Bible looks at the world and says, you think you're free, but you're slaves. You can't stop sinning. You can't not sin. But now as children, we are redeemed. We're not objects of wrath anymore. We're actually people with a seat at the table. We are welcome. One of the things that I love about home is that when my children come home from school, they walk in the door and as mind-numbing as it is that they throw their bags everywhere and leave shoes over there and, and, and don't put things away. And I'm not singling out any one of them because they've all done it from time to time. And I do it too. But you know you're home when, when you can just be you and you're allowed to be you. I've had the privilege to see my kids at school and it's interesting to watch the difference in their behavior between school and when they're at home. And I related to that. I was a kid who, who often would, would, would arrive home alone. And no matter how much teasing or ridicule that I might have experienced during the day, when I got home and I sat on the lounge and I picked up the remote to watch my, my afternoon cartoons, man, I was the king. I had access to the privileges of the household. I didn't know how much the food cost that my parents bought. I didn't know how much the mortgage was. All I knew was I had a room and a bed and a table and a television. We move from not being slaves to being children, a complete reversal. We move from, from a context of injustice to a context of equality. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful essay called The Inner Ring where he talks about there's something, there's something in the sinful human nature that seeks to always draw lines between people and groups because we derive a sense of comfort on being on the inside and saying somebody else is on the outside. And if I can draw that line, it makes me feel comfortable to exclude somebody else because I have a measure of superiority. I have a measure of protection if I'm in the inner ring. But here in Christ, Paul is writing to men and women, and he says something radical in his day, and he says, you all are one. You women who didn't have a status, who had no rights to own property or anything like that, you, you, you slaves whose masters may be in the same room, outside of the church there is a power relationship, but inside the church there's a relationship of unity. There's a relationship of equality in Christ. It doesn't change the fact that we are men and women, that we have jobs and careers or that we have backgrounds. It's not to say these things just fade into nothingness, but the defining status of the Christian is Christ, a son of God through faith in him. We move from orphans to, to being brothers and sisters. If we're adopted and elevated into this status as, as sons, we're free now, and, but we actually now have obligation. We are bound together. Raise your hand if you have siblings in this room.
When you think about your siblings, what are some of the defining characteristics of your relationship to them? Right? I see some people smiling. I see some people chuckling. Right? You've probably heard, you've probably heard the people say, you know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. <laughs> right? It's true. You know, one of the defining features of a sibling is they're there. That's it. Just, they're, they're there in your sphere. They occupy the same space. They're, you know, until you, you can leave home, you're staring at somebody else who has the same rights and privileges that you do of being in the same house. As much as I tried to show my superiority to my younger sister, and as much as I tried to, to show that I was worthy of all the privileges that I was receiving and that she needed to really mature of it before she could have access to those same privileges, my parents didn't see it that way because we belonged in the same house. I had a bed, she had a bed. What they served me, they served her as well. We were different. But she was there, and we belonged to each other. And, and we moved from being poor beggars to qualified, qualified heirs. It's not, it's not just a nice idea. You see, in Christ, you, the paperwork's been done. You have claim. You have claim to the kingdom of God. And the proof of this is in the spirit of God who Paul is very, very, very clear to define as the spirit of his son. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. And look, note, note very, very briefly here. The same God who at the right time sent the son born of a woman to redeem you, that same one in verse six, because you are sons, sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The Father sent the Son, and the Father also sent the Spirit of the Son into you and I. This is our status. This is a fulfillment of what God said to David in, in the, the covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18 uh, to 29. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. It's, it's where he lands. He says, the defining characteristic is, do you have the Spirit of Christ? If you do. You're carrying, you're carrying your adoption papers. We share a status. Finally, we share a resemblance. Our resemblance to God. As we said, every family has customs. Every family has, has particular ways. Every family has quirks. Our resemblance in the church is, is meant to reflect the God who created us. Galatians 4, 6, and 7, in a particular way, highlights this. Because you are his sons, that is God's sons, he sent his, the spirit of his son, that is Jesus, into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Abba was a term of intimacy. It's, it's often referred to as the equivalent of daddy, but it's not really. <laughs> there's a there, there's there's kind of a there's sort of a, a babyishness that we we put with the word daddy. 
that is not fitting. It's, it's, it's a term of intimacy. It's a term of endearment. Maybe more like, like pa. Something that a child might use, but something that an adult would be, care, would be comfortable to use as well. Anyway, don't run with that. I just made it up. But the point is, Jesus connected with God in a way of intimacy between a child and a father. Think of, think of, think of the father in Hosea. Think of God's, God's compassion being aroused for Ephraim. Think about what it would look like for the son to reflect that compassion. That's how Jesus relates to his father. That even in the garden, in the midst of sweating drops of blood and, and, and fearful of going to the cross, that Jesus would still say, nevertheless, not my will, but your be, yours be done. That's not him saying, oh, well, if I have to, fine, I'll clean my room. It's saying, Father, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. But if you want it, I will do it because I trust you. That kind of trust that is built over a knowledge of character, over a heart connection, over a mutual understanding. You see, on a playground or in a camp, I look around and I see wonderful, lovely children, but my eyes go to my son. My eye is upon him. Dramatic music. <laughs> Thanks, Grant. <laughs> my eyes go to my son. And when my son looks at me, he doesn't have to tell me. He doesn't have to say the right words because I see it in his eyes. I know him. And Jesus knew the Father. And his spirit has been put into you. That you would know him too. And as you know him in this deep and intimate way, Paul says, that spirit will cry out to him. It will grieve over what he grieves. It will rejoice in what he rejoices in. He will pull you deeper and closer. He'll pull you out of this world into the kingdom and there will be a deep and burning longing for that communion and connection with God. We yearn to commune with him. All right. What is the family resemblance? What's the family resemblance? There's probably more, but this is what jumped out. First of all, our family resemblance is holiness. If God is holy, his children ought to be holy. They will be holy. He has justified us through faith in Christ, meaning he has removed our sin and he has given us the righteousness of Jesus, hallelujah, I don't have to establish my own. But, as Peter will write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 to 17, to be children of God in this world means to say no to the evil desires that we used to have when we were orphans, when we were out on the street, being run by our, by our flesh and whatever appetites were in our bellies, 
Peter says, no, you don't live that way anymore. You live for God. Next, our family resemblance is contentment. I, I, I had to summarize it in one word because I was running out of room on the slide. But, but literally, Paul says, the world will know you're children of God when you stop whinging and arguing. Don't believe me? Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like stars in the sky. How's the world going to know that we belong to God's family? We stop complaining. We stop whinging and arguing with each other. Didn't know that verse was coming, did you? What else is in the family resemblance? Generosity. James 1.27, we read that the religion that God desires is to love orphans and widows, a God who cares for the poor. 1 John 3.17, the apostle raises this question. I want to get it right. One John three seventeen. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Are you really in the family? What else is in the resemblance? Love for enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 46. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. And I should say this love extends not just to our enemies, but to our brothers and sisters as well. I hope they're not the same category for you. <laughs> but love for enemies is often presented as the extremity the extreme form of love. Listen to, what, listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen to this connection. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is what my dad does, Jesus says. You're my brother. You're, you're, if this is your house, this is your family, this is what we do. He causes the son his son, <laughs> his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, if you're a son, be a son. Be a full-fledged son. We said every family is different. This is how this family is different. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We don't use relationships to grease the wheels of our life. We love because God loved us first. This is the family resemblance. Finally, and I don't know about you, but this slide's been making me hungry all morning. 
I'm glad I saved it to the end. <laughs> WDBC is a family. We, we, we talk a lot about transformation here. It's our vision. And transformation is, yes, you know, it's, like, oh, it's a buzzword. I'm tired of hearing about it. Fair enough. That's fine. But what we're looking for is we're, we're trying to understand all these radical changes that the gospel brings about. And transformation is a good catchword. So here's what transformation means. It means finding our place in God's house. Our vision is to see all people transform. That means we want to see all who would be willing to take a place in God's house. The gospel says there's enough room in God's house for everyone who wants to belong. You don't have to pre-qualify. If you want to adopt children, sometimes that's a process that takes years. It takes, uh, it takes thousands and thousands of dollars. You think about those children waiting and waiting and waiting to be adopted. And then even when someone gets cleared, there's the whole risk that the one who's actually able to adopt won't want them. Well, God says, I've filed all the paperwork. I've paid all the money that needs to be paid. And I'm not here saying, I don't want you because you got a lazy eye. Or I don't want you because you got a limp. Or I don't want you because you're a bit of a difficult person. Or I don't want you because you're not rich enough. Or I don't want you because you're this race or that race. God's not doing any of that. He's saying, you can come. It's as if he's opened his door into the street and he's yelling for all the orphans. He said, anyone who doesn't have a place, you can come. And so transformation here at WDBC, this is what it's going to look like. We know we will be embracing our identity as family when we start to do this. When we learn to trust our Father's kindness. This is different. Secondly, when we discover the richness of Jesus, oh man. If you ever become more enamored with this place than Jesus, Stop what you're doing. Hit the brakes. Get some cold water, splash it on your face. Go into a closet, sit down and pray. Because Jesus is the treasure. We discover the richness of Jesus. Thirdly, use your privileges as God's child. I, and then I get it because, you know, we, we often feel like, oh, is, am I really allowed? And I get it because the world looks at you and says, get away, street urchin. But your father's different. Use your privileges. Partake of his provision. Communicate with him. Listen to the spirit of his son who indwells you. Fourthly, receive one another as brothers and sisters. It was a wonderful atmosphere here this morning. I really appreciate the people who, who have come today and who have said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage. I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to come and I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to sit down in my seat, but I'm going to come, I'm going to engage with my brothers and sisters. Thank you. We need to receive one another into our homes and into our lives and finally live like heirs, not like orphans. You see, an orphan knows they have to fend for themselves. The mindset of an orphan is one, is one who says, I don't have anybody watching my back. I have to do it. No one's going to look out for me. 
But in Christ, we're not orphans, we're heirs. You have had conferred upon you a royal priesthood, a status, a kingdom. Paul would say every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Peter would write, we have everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who loved us. Paul would say to the church in Philippi, he would, he would, you know, they're trying to give him a gift and he's in this awkward position of saying, well, thank you, but don't thank you because I didn't really need it. But, you know, I hope God sort of sees what you did because that's really cool what you did. And, and you know, by the way, may God, may God bless you according to the, to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, well, the metric that God uses to measure his vast wealth and blessedness, will that metric be applied to, to your need? <laughs> Hallelujah. Paul can be content. Live like an heir, not an orphan. The church is God's household. There's a place for you. There's room at the table. Jesus said, I've gone. I've gone to prepare the eternal place. But right now, he says, I dwell in the hearts of my people through the spirit that I poured out. He says, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit reside in us, John 15. They make their home in us. So, welcome to the family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We are here by grace. We partake of your, of your mercy. We receive you, Jesus, as, as the bread of life, bread from heaven, Lord, living water. Thank you for being our shelter and our refuge. God, thank you that we can call you Father, that we can know you in an intimate way. And God, may your children here today, may they reflect you May this world who, who doesn't know you, may they see us and be reminded that, that there's a family out there that I could belong to. Help us to receive each other, Lord. And to make use of all that you've given us in Christ as we walk after him by faith. Amen.